Welcome to this Tournament of Everything, the whole show, where we look at 18 competitors, nine at a time, except we actually do two at a time. That's right, we do nine rounds of that, and within those rounds, we take every single thing that's ever been, write their name on a small ping pong ball, throw those into one of those spinny cage contraptions, and we let her rip, eventually pulling out just one ball. Which one of those will make us say, bingo? Well, that'll be the one moving on to the next round of... The Ultimate Tournament of Everything. Well, that sounds great. We've only done this 43 times. You think I'd know the rules by now, but your way sounds like a lot of work. And here we I, are, two lazy gentlemen. That's right. Two lazy gentlemen who are too lazy to get those cool little ink stampers. So, Rob, why don't you tell us what we'll actually be doing instead? We will actually be using a random link generator from the Wikipedia and looking at two competitors chosen at the moment of their competition. We never know what's coming, except for in this moment, we do know what's coming. And what's coming is round one. In round one, we have the HMS Keppel from 1778 against... Homotheli. Yes, we got two things starting with H. Which one's going to end up in round two? We're going to have to find that out right now. Let's dig in. The HMS Keppel was the American privateer brig New Broom of New Haven, Connecticut. That aerial and savage captured on the 21st of October, 1778. Now, I want to say privateer is just a fancy word for pirate. I believe that's correct, um, although they may have had a bit more arrogance in doing so, uh, you know, a bit more self-righteousness, but that is conjecture. Now, Captain Israel Bishop received a commission for the new broom in July of 1778, and Ariel, under the command of Captain Charles Phipps, captured New Broom on the 22nd of October in 77-8, as well as the schooner's Lark and three friends. New Broom was armed with 16 guns and had sailed from New London when Ariel and Savage stopped her off Nantucket Shoals and sent her into New York. That's a lot of things for this ship to do, and I wonder if the competitor on the other side does half as many things. And it might not, but it has four times as many legs, because, of course, we are talking about an Australian ground spider. More specifically, Homeotheli mecans. Yes, this is a monotypic genus of Australian ground spiders uh, containing the single species Homeotheli. Mykins, as stated previously, this was first described, not discovered, but described, I like that, by Eugene Simon in 1908 and has only been found within the confines of the island continent of Australia. You know, I haven't been to Australia, but I got to imagine that they call this spider the privateer of the desert. That sounds about right. I think I've heard that um, while pulling shrimps off the Barbie, but I can't be certain. Uh, I'm sh I, I am pretty certain that they've got a bunch of funky spiders down under. 
Yeah, most things down there, if they have eight legs or no legs, they're probably dangerous to those on two. And I think for that reason, I don't think I need to give a spider another win because it might just get its ego up and start attacking larger prey items like, I don't know, people. Or ships, just as the HMS Keppel seems to have done so successfully and without any legs at all. And I think for that reason, it's got to be my pick for this round. It's going to be mine as well. So let's hit that button and move it on on. The ultimate tournament of everything. I'm very thankful for whoever wrote the spider article that they did not include a picture because I do not need any more nightmare fuel for today. Rob is slightly arachnophobic, um, but what we're doing here is racking up the rounds, and let's go next to round two. It's time for round two. In round two, we have Thomas Randall against Packwood, the surname. Okay, we've got someone uh, flying fast, an Australian racing driver versus Packwood, surname, the last name of any number of people. Your guess is as good as mine. We're going to learn about a few of them. Let's do so now. Thomas Randall, born April 7th, 1996, is an Australian racing driver who currently races in the Supercars Championship for Tickford Racing in the number 55 Ford Mustang GT. Randall has also won the 2014 Australian Formula Ford Series, the 2017 Toyota Racing Series, and the 2020 Super 2 Series. In 2018, he was awarded the Mike Cable Young Gun Award, and in 2020, the BRDC Innes Ireland Trophy. He's been racing for a long, long time. Prior to his single-seater career, he enjoyed a successful period in karting in his native Australia. Another Australian mate showing up here in the competition. In 2012, he won Junior Clubman Class of the Australian National Sprint Kart Championships and Rotax Junior Class of the Australian Rotax Nationals. Now, when he raced in Formula Ford and Formula 4, he made his single-seater debut in 2013, racing for the Evans Motorsport Group. He finished 7th with two podiums and another 13 point-scoring finishes. He switched to Dream Motorsport in 2014. He clinched the championship title, winning five races with just four points of advantage over Jordan Lloyd. Randall continued this collaboration with Dream Motorsport into the new for 2015 Australian Formula 4 Championship, where he battled with Lloyd again, but this time Lloyd outscored him by 54 points. Now, we've been talking about Formula 4, and he went on to be in Formula 3, Formula 3.5, Formula 2, and working his way on and on closer to the big show, Formula 1, which it does not appear as though he has yet reached. However, in 2021, Randall left the Super 2 Series and moved to the Australian S5000 Championship to race with Team BRM, or Berm, if you will, in an on Roke Ligier JS F3 S5000. After he couldn't find a ride for 21 Super 2 season, you're going to want to have a car or at least a ride to the race if you're going to be a race car driver. Hitchhiking is not allowed because remember, these are single seat events. Now, I wonder if there are any racers in the Packwood family, and that's what we're going to find out. 
Now, the Packwood surname includes notable people such as Alan George Packwood, who's director of the Churchill Archive Center, Bob Packwood, who's a senator from Oregon, Jean Packwood, an artist and political cartoonist, and Kelly Packwood, a Welsh international lawn and indoor bowler. But Mike, tell them who else we also get. We also get Carrie Packwood, also a Welsh international lawn and indoor bowler. Uh, in addition to Joshua Packwood, first white valedictorian of Morehouse College, Will Packwood, an American soccer player, and William Packwood, an American politician. Oh, look at that. All the Packwoods, and none of them are racers. No, I don't think that um, they're living fast enough, furious enough, or any of those things required to be victorious in this, the most uh, competitive of competitions that you'll find here. I think that we've got our uh, high-flying, fast-racing other individual who I'm leaning towards, Mr. Thomas Randall. I think I have to agree. We all know this is the most ultimate of tournaments. And in this case, the guy with the most ultimate record, who's probably the fastest, is our winner for this round of... The Ultimate Tournament of Everything. Well, he didn't make it to Formula One, but he was in two, 3.5, and three. But speaking of three, let's move on to round three. It's time for round three. In round three, we have Wiggins, Alabama, against Carlos Hernandez, the footballer, born in 1982. Yeah, don't wig out here, but this is going to be a very exciting round between Wiggins and uh, Mr. Hernandez. Um, Looking sharp in his uniform there, but Wiggins, Alabama is looking sharp down there near the bottom of the state. Let's see which one of these is going to be able to hold their ground and score a goal here in round three. Now, of course, Wiggins is the unincorporated community in Covington County, Alabama. The community now lies within the city limits of Babby or Bobby. B-A-B-B-I-E. If you're from Alabama, I'm sure you pronounce it one of those ways, or maybe not. Who knows? And with a sweet accent. Now, this community was named for Mr. James Wiggins, who served as the first postmaster. A post office operated under the name Wiggins from 1880 to 1904. Some very formative years and a lot of post to post. The city sits at an elevation of 315 feet, and the area code is 334. There's got to be a store there that has like 334 on it somewhere. Uh, the fighting 334s. But speaking of fighting and numbers, let's get over to our other competitor, who I'm sure had a number on the back of his jersey, Mr. Carlos Hernandez. As you said, oh, he's also... Um, Simply known, he's got a longer name. Let's see, his full name is Carlos Gerardo Hernandez Valverde, which is great, but he's known simply as Carlos Hernandez, a former Costa Rican football player who last played as an attacking midfielder for the Puntaneras in the Segunda Division de Costa Rica. Now, he didn't just play, he was one of their most important players in the Premier Division of Costa Rica, the Costa Rican top tier national club where he was the top assister in the 2004 and 2005 seasons. 
He had built a reputation as a great scorer from long and middle distances, combined with high-level vision and technique that made him one of the most dangerous midfielders in the region. However, Hernandez struggled with injury in the 2006-07 season, which also resulted in weight gain. In a bid to regain his former self, he was loaned out to the A-League club Melbourne Victory. Now, on the 12th of June, 2007, it was confirmed by the victory that Hernandez had signed with the club on a two-year loan from LD Alhuense. He made his first appearance for the club in their 1-0 A-League preseason cup loss to the Newcastle Jets, coming on as a substitute in the 70th minute. In the next game, on the 28th of July, he got his first start against Perth Glory, scoring his first goal for the victory. Now, of course, we're talking about the team. It doesn't tell me whether they won. I'm sure they did, though. I like this way of naming uh, teams. You know, here in America, we, you get like, oh, you're a, an animal or you're a, uh, uh, you know, a beast of some sort. I like these being, you know, kind of more... Uh, aggrandized, a little bit more abstract. We are glory. We are victory. We are hunger. I don't know, but I think that it might be the way to go. Um, early on during this, Carlos Hernandez's career, first season with Melbourne, he was criticized by a portion of the supporters of that team, said to be overweight, um, but you can't blame that on him. He scored his first league goal for Melbourne victory against Perth Glory on the 21st of October 27th. Is that the same game that we were talking about before? Nope, different game, but in this one, we know that they won 2-1 to one at home. Now, all those comments about his weight did motivate him, apparently, because toward the end of the season, his fitness improved and he struck his form, becoming a regular goal scorer and a sister. One of his most famous games for the victory was when he scored Melbourne's only goal against Juventus in a friendly at the Docklands Stadium in May of 2008. The goal was a cracking, curling effort from just outside the box, leaving the goalkeeper with absolutely no chance. When you've got a leg that can bend it like uh, Carlos Hernandez, you're going to score some goals. I'm looking over here, and this individual really did put up some points. Um, Looking through his records here, we can see in the years of 2001 to 2009, with the team Alawal Hensensia, something like that, he scored 19 goals. And then from the years 2009 to 2012 with the aforementioned Melbourne victory, he ultimately scored 28 goals in only four years. That's a lot of goals. That was the most he would score in any period of time, according to this list. We've had a lot of footballers on the tournament, and none of them have scored as many goals as I would say Carlos Hernandez has. Now, like we said, he was on loan from that club in Costa Rica, and it doesn't look like he ever played for them again. So he got loaned out and then, I guess, traded around for the rest of his career, eventually retiring in 2018. Like that snowblower that you'll never see again. Somewhere it's doing great work. And that somewhere must have been this uh, victory team. They've done very well with him. Is that enough for him to earn a victory in this round over Wiggins, Alabama? I think today, today it might be. I am like to agree with you. Wiggins, you know, you're an unincorporated community. That usually gives you an advantage here in this most ultimate tournament of everything. But 
he scored a lot of goals and I like his team name. Um, I kind of like the jerseys too, that he's wearing. That's, that's slick. I think I could see myself in that. Yeah. I'd love to rep the three, three, four, but unfortunately I got to give it to the guy who scored 80 with the victory to get this victory today. The ultimate tournament Things are heating up. I hope that uh, we see another great victory and some more glory as we proceed into round four. Ah, my round four is ready. In round four, we have Rivier Baudette against... Tupanacarita. Okay. We'll see. Location, location, location. Wait, in this round, there are only two locations. We've got Riviera Boudet, a municipality of Quebec, facing off against another municipality in the western part of the state of Rio Grande do Sul, Brazil. Uh, we got the North versus the South, and of course, I mean the Northern Hemisphere against the Southern Hemisphere. Let's start with our friends to the North, Canada. Now, this area is primarily made up of farmland with residential development along the St. Lawrence River and was first identified as the Point aux Baudette as early as 1686 on a map by Deschaies. This name, also spelled Baudette and Baudette, you can't hear that because its spellings refers to a small peninsula in the St. Lawrence River and was also given to the stream that empties into the St. Lawrence next to it. Various theories exist as to why this location was called Baudette of any of the spellings previously alluded to, since this name could refer to a donkey, a type of folding bed with canvas straps, a trestle, for cutting wood. Any of those three could be the origin for this, and we'll never know because it's not in this article. Now, in 1734, Point d'Abodet was included in the Seigneurie granted to Paul Joseph Lamoignier de Longuil. That's the sound that happens when I pronounce something really, really good. By 1787, a sawmill existed at the Baudette River, and in 1855, the Grand Trunk Railway was constructed through the area, and two years later, the River Baudette Post Office officially opened. Now, there is a lot here, and I got to imagine why they couldn't come up with other words than Baudette for those mentioned things, but hey, Whatever. I'm not Canadian or French, for that matter. They have some. And... <laughs> <laughs> well, I was just going to say, neither is our other competitor. So let's take a look at them because they are definitely not French nor Canadian, for they are Brazilian. The Tupanciritia, um, pardon, I didn't hear a ding on that one. Must not have done so good. With a, let's see, unencouraged. It's the municipality in the western part of the state of Rio Grande do Sul, Brazil, with a population of 24,068 humans. Now, don't just forget its area as well. 2,251.86 square kilometers at an elevation of 465 meters. I'm assuming that's the average elevation. I doubt it's just a flat square up there in Brazil. <laughs> the name comes from the Tupi language, and it is located west of the state capital of Porto Alegre and northeast of Alegrete. 
Its neighboring municipalities are Cruz Alta and Julio de Castillos. Yeah, so this is basically, uh, looks like it's down at the very bottom of Brazil. Um, way, way down there. Almost far down as you can be. Um, let's see here. We've covered most of the information that's available, except for I'm sure our viewers, listeners would like to know the postal code. And that's 98170. Um that is, though, the extent of the information that we have available to us. Yeah, if you would like to mail something there, you need that piece of information. You already have the town name. Now I just think you need a person. Yeah, you're going to want to make a Brazilian friend. And aren't we all? But in this round, are we going to make friends with the Brazilians or with the Canadians? And move? Can't we all just get along? Can't we all just get along and be friends with both of them? Not here in the Ultimate Tournament of Everything, where we're all about conflict, we're all about divisiveness, and uh, also, you know, community and bringing people together. All at the same time, we are a juxtaposition unto ourselves. So, I propose that, and apparently we're at some sort of an impasse, we proceed to our impasse protocol. Time for a tiebreaker. Since we cannot agree on who should be the winner, one of them will have to lose. But I'm not going to pick and Mike's not going to pick. We're going to leave it up to the universe to decide. That's right. We've got a crystal ball here and we're just going to rub it and rub it and rub it until we see something inside the crystal ball, hopefully either a Canadian or a Brazilian. I think that's probably a great thing to do, but... I've left my crystal ball in the shop. Unfortunately, it was on the fritz. It just kept showing me an upside-down image of myself. Instead, mm. I think we should pick random numbers between 1 and 10,000, maybe even the postal codes if we can find them. Okay. Uh, who would you like to have your guests represent here, the Canadians or the Brazilians? <clears throat> Canadians. I'm going to go Canadians. Okay, and I'm going to get myself a Brazilian. So, what number would you like to pick? I'm going to pick the number 2,489. That's a good number. I'm going to pick myself. Uh, let's, hey, let's hit that postal code up. I'm going to go with 9,817. So, why don't you roll that big 10,000-sided si die that we picked you up at the store? Okay, here we go. Our number, randomly generated with the giant imaginary die I have in my hand, is 9,068. I continue my reign of victory and glory, and the Brazilian municipality of Tupanicreta is moving on to the next round of the ultimate tournament of everything. Sorry, Canada. You're welcome, Brazil. <laughs> <laughs> they can't all be winners. But that's okay. Because you know who could be a winner? Round five. Round five. Round five. In this round, we have Martin Roning against Barbara J. Fiala. Uh, we've got a Norwegian curler 
definitely going to be competitive facing off against the former commissioner of the New York State Department of Motor Vehicles and county executive of Broome County, New York. No one to be trifled with. Let's see which one of these two awesome individuals is going to be the victor in this round. Martine Volan Roning was fittingly born December 27, 1999, a winter birth for the Norwegian curler from Lillehammer. She currently plays lead on the Norwegian women's curling team skipped by Marianne Rorvik. Now, is the lead the one that throws the stone, or is that the one that's sweeping up the competition? I do not know enough about curling to know the answer, and I doubt the article's going to tell us. Well, let's find out. Now, Renning made her international debut at the 2015 European Junior Curling Challenge as the alternate on the Norwegian team skipped by Maya Romsvjell. After a 5-1 round robin record, the team lost in the quarterfinal round to Italy. No, it's never great when you lose to Italy. Ronan joined the Norwegian Junior Women's Curling Team as the third for the 2015-16 season. That team, skipped by Mary Forgberg, played in the 2016 World Junior B Curling Championships, where they finished with a 2-4 and four record, missing the playoff round. She then rejoined Maya Ramsfeld to rink the following season with the second Millie Havs Nordby. Led Victoria Johansson, in, or sorry, lead Victoria Johansson in alternate Aaron Meslow. In her second season with that team, they finished third in the 2018 World Junior B Curling Championships. And it was this victory that qualified them for the 2018 World Junior Curling Championships, where they were able to reach the playoffs with a 5-4 and four record. That's all it takes these days. The team then lost in the semifinal and bronze medal game, settling for fourth place, but still not too bad. They ended the season by winning the 2018 Norwegian Women's Curling Championships. Now, because of their high placement at the 2018 Championships, the team earned direct qualification very nice into the 2019 world junior curling championships there they finished in seventh place with a three and six record not great but enough to avoid relegation to the b championships they also won their second straight norwegian women's championship title i had no idea so many sports had relegation but you know it has more relegation than just about anything else in the world American politics. That is right. Specifically, the DMV. Barbara J. Fiala is the former commissioner of the New York State Department of Motor Vehicles and county executive of Broome County, New York. So there you go. The DMV. Nothing feels like being relegated to a place no one wants to go than the place everyone has to go if you want to be able to go places. Absolutely correct. She was the first female... Exec County Executive of Broome County and served as the president of the New York State Association of County Executives. On the 30th of July, 2015, Fiala officially announced her candidacy for the New York State Senate's 52nd District. This seat had become vacant after then-Senator Thomas W. Libus was convicted of a federal felony of lying, uh, perhaps... Yeah, well, that seems to make sense to the FBI. Fiala was, however, defeated in the November election by Fred Akshar, the Republican nominee. 
I'm not a lawyer, so I can't really give legal advice. Although here's one piece of legal advice I'm fairly certain I can give. Don't lie to the FBI. It even rhymes, so you can remember it. Unless you want to be president. <laughs> well, okay. Don't still. I'm sticking with it. Don't lie to the FBI. Now, she was Broome County Executive for five years when she was then appointed commissioner of the aforementioned Motor Vehicle Department. She was elected in 2004 and re-elected in 2008. During her tenure as county executive, the Greater Binghampton Transportation Center was developed. The George Harvey Justice Building was refurbished, and a number of small business development programs were launched. Fiala touts bipartisan cooperation as the reason for her accomplishments as county executive. We all get more done when we work together. Many hands make for light work, they say. She went on, though, with her career. She was appointed commissioner of the New York State Department of Motor Vehicles, colloquially known as the DMV, in 2011 and served there until the end of 2014, which is basically an eternity to be at the DMV. Now, during her tenure, the state placed a higher priority on online services. The DMV website was redesigned and many motor vehicles transactions were added to the website additionally the dmv fully known as the department of motor vehicles launched lifetime adventure licenses for hunting fishing skiing and boating this adventure license offered new york residents a chance to list all adventure licenses on their driver's license and the adventure licenses do not expire I kind of love that they're called adventure licenses and they're on your driver's license. It's one less piece of paper and you get to feel like you're going on an adventure. I'm not just going fishing. I'm going on an adventure. Maybe even an adventure that will lead me to the Senate. Just like our competitor here. Now upon that conviction of the guy who lied to the FBI, she said, you know what? I'll run for that Senate seat and I won't lie to the FBI. So she ran, promising to bring jobs to the southern tier, said one major issue here is the jobs. There are no good-paying jobs, and people liked that so much that she lost. <laughs> yeah, because no one really wants to work. We all just want it to be the weekend. We're all working for the weekend, which is when I imagine that most curling challenges would take place. It seems to be a better time. People are more free, and the ice has got to be colder on the weekends. It just seems colder. Yeah, it's got to be one of those things where it can't be anybody's full-time job, right? Right. Now, speaking of full-time jobs, we're looking at the personal life of going back to our curling competitor, Martine Roning. We can see that she is currently a student. She's learning even as she's living. A student, a curler, and a champion. And I think I'm going to give her one more feather for her cap by announcing her as the victor in this round. Yes, this curler had a clean sweep of this 1v1 round, and she'll be moving on to the next round of... The Ultimate Tournament of Everything. Gotta love the DMV. Oh, the DMV, almost as much as sweeping the ice. Probably a little bit less, though, um, because it does look fun. They put a lot of effort into it, and again cleanest ice you can find yay dmv ice mm. frozen in time but we're not we're moving forward in 
to round six. Make him turn around and ask her. He comes, he comes around the last round and there you have it. There is your winner, round six. I'm really excited for round six because we have two things that everyone is going to feel like they remember a lot about but only vaguely are familiar with, such as the Virginia Company and child and adolescent psychiatry. Very, very fascinating. Both getting into the the, the crook of everything, the root of all that uh, becomes us. We've got the Virginia Company, an English trading company chartered by King James in 1606, facing off against child and adolescent psychiatry, a branch of psychiatry that focuses on diagnosis, treatment, and prevention of mental disorders in children, adolescents, and their families. Now, the Virginia Company is, of course, the one that was supposed to colonize the eastern coast of America. The coast was named Virginia after Elizabeth I, and it stretched from present-day Maine to the Carolinas. The company's shareholders were Londoners, and it was distinguished from the Plymouth Company, which was chartered at the same time and composed largely of gentlemen from, you guessed it, Plymouth, England. Now, I just would like to back up this Coast was named Virginia after Elizabeth. What's the connection there? Well, Virginia is short for Elizabeth. Ah, yes, naturally. And as well as, you know, another thing that we all know is that the biggest trade breakthrough for the Virginia Company resulted after Adventurer. Um, not, uh, you know, they this adventurer was different from the adventure license. Mm. Definitely may have not had a license to do this. Um, however, it was the adventurer and colonist John Rolfe who introduced several sweeter strains of tobacco from the Caribbean. These yielded a more appealing product than the harsh-tasting tobacco native to Virginia. Cultivation of Rolfe's new tobacco strains produced a strong commodity crop for export for the London Company and other early English colonies that helped to balance a national trade deficit with Spain. Now, the company failed in 1624 following the widespread destruction of the Great Massacre of 1622 by indigenous peoples in the colony, which decimated the English population there. On May 24th of that year, James dissolved the company and made Virginia a royal colony from England with colonists retaining self-government. Let's take it back a little bit. In 1606, a ruling council in London composed of major shareholders in the enterprise uh, took place. The members were nominated by the company and appointed by James. Uh, was that a king back then? Yes, King James, I assume that's who we're talking about. The council in England then directed the settlers to appoint their own local council, which proved to be ineffective. The council had to obtain approval from London for expenditures and laws and limited the enterprise to only 100 square miles. Yeah, and that ineffective government is going to be a theme here because in 1609 they had a second charter. And expanded the areas because the local councils had proven again ineffective. Governor Thomas West, the third Baron de la War, known as Lord Delaware, oh, hmm. Delaware, got it, sailed for America in 1610, and King James delegated the governor of Virginia absolute power. 
Also in 1609, a much larger third supply mission was organized. A new purpose-built ship named Sea Venture was rushed into service without the customary sea trials. I think that's foreshadowing. She became the <laughs> flagship of the fleet of the nine ships with most of the leader's food and supplies aboard. What's What happens to this ship? I don't know. I'd love to tell you. The third supply convoy encountered a hurricane that lasted three days and separated the ships from one another. The Sea Venture was leaking through its new caulking, and Admiral Somers had it driven aground on a reef to avoid sinking, saving 150 men and women, but destroying the ship. This uninhabited archipelago was officially named the Somers Isles after Admiral Somers, and the survivors built two smaller ships from salvaged parts of the Sea Venture, which they named Deliverance and Patience. They sound like team names from that uh, soccer league from the previous rounds. Ten months later, they continued on to Jamestown, arriving May 23, 1610, enough several men behind on the archipelago to establish possession of it. At Jamestown, they found that more than 85% of the 500 colonists had perished during the what we're calling the Starving Time. The Sea Venture passengers had anticipated finding a thriving, a thriving colony and had brought little food or supplies with them, which clearly was a mistake. The colonists at Jamestown were saved only by the timely arrival three weeks later of a supply mission headed by Thomas West, the third Baron of Delaware. Very interesting to learn the... You know, the root of the name Delaware always seems strange. What also seems strange is that the good times keep on rolling here for the Virginia Company. They completely failed to discover gold or silver in Virginia to the disappointment of its investors. However, they did establish trades of various types, almost worth as much as gold and or silver. The company benefited from lotteries held throughout England until they were canceled by the crown. And the crown even considered titles of nobility to gain support for the colony. Yeah, but that wasn't enough because the Jamestown Massacre eventually led to so many bad things happening. They said, you know what? We are going to dissolve the company. We're just going to be a colony. We're going to quit this business thing. We're just going to try and live here. And live here, we know they did. Rent-free in our heads. Yes, but they were not the only ones doing so. The indigenous peoples had grown by the mid, you know, middle early 18 or 1600s, increasingly resistant to the competition from the colonists and the mistreatment of their lands. They rose up in what is known as the Jamestown Massacre of 1622, also known as the Great Massacre, decimating populations. Some of the survivors of the 80 plantations gathered into Eight near Jamestown, and in Britain, company officers debated over guarding the original charter or deciding to disband the company. This massacre brought unfavorable attention to the colony, bad press, particularly from Janes, who had originally chartered the company. There was a period of debate in Britain whether they wished to guard the original charter and to be disbanded, and then in 1624, they dissolved the company and made it a royal colony and... Now we have it, uh, you know, then we took it over about 150 years later. Yeah, so things there didn't go well. And now we're going to talk about what happens when things sometimes also don't go well if you're a child or an adolescent, and specifically the psychiatry. 
Now, the history of this, when psychiatrists and pediatricians first began to recognize and discuss childhood psychiatric disorders in the 19th century, they were largely influenced by literary works of the Victorian era. Authors like the Bronte sisters, George Eliot, and Charles Dickens introduced new ways of thinking about the child mind and the potential influence early childhood experiences could have on child development in the subsequent adult mind. When the Journal of Psychological Medicine and Mental Pathology, the first psychiatric journal in English, was published in 1848, child psychiatry didn't exist as its own field yet. However, some of the earliest works on the possibility of nervous disorders and insanity in children were published in the journal, and several medical writers directly referenced works such as Jane Eyre, Wuthering Heights, Dombey and Son, and David Copperfield to illustrate this new conceptualization. It's so weird to me that doctors are like, hey, you know what we should do? We should read novels to figure out if they're true, and let's just assume they are the way they describe children. This shows you the power of popular media versus the waves of knowledge, which basically are science. Um, they're contrasting, but often conflated. As early as 1899, the term child psychology was used as a subtitle in Mannheimer's monograph, Les Troubles Mentaux des Enfants, which I think means children. However, the Swiss psychiatrist Moritz Tramer was probably the first to define the parameters of child psychology in terms of diagnosis, treatment, and prognosis within the discipline of medicine in 1933. Yeah, there's been a lot of history there. It's Actually, the article is fairly interesting. We won't have time to read all of it to you today, but I'll end with this paragraph. Modern neuroscience, genetics, and epigenetics, and public health research has presented the tantalizing possibility that it can now be said with relative certainty that much, certainly not all, is understood about why some children struggle and others soar. Although it is an oversimplification, it can now be suggested that it is possible to understand how environmental factors, both negative and positive, influence the genome or epigenome, which in turn influence the structure and function of the brain, and thus human thoughts, actions, and behaviors. So what I'm getting from this is before now, no one really thought that what happened to you as a kid impacted your life as an adult, which seems like a really fairly simple thing to understand. It turns out children are people too, with brains, feelings, thoughts, and a susceptibility to trauma and being totally messed up by the people and things that we encounter. But here in this round, we've got two competitors encountering one another uh we've got child psychology or i'm sorry child and adolescent psychiatry there is a difference there versus the virginia company who seem to have failed at every step although if we hadn't failed at so many steps perhaps we wouldn't need child and adolescent psychiatry so who's going to be the victor here in this round I think I'm going to give the win to child and adolescent psychiatry because while they might be able to look and go, hey, that's probably not great, they can also look at it and go, hey, we can fix that. <laughs> the Virginia company, there ain't no fixing that thing. It's done. 
Yep, that is broke as a joke, and it was from the beginning. Doesn't seem as though anything good, positive, productive came out of that at all. But the goal of child and adolescent psychiatry is to create, uh, you know, turn things that might have been maybe not so great into things that are good, positive, and productive. And I think that's the exact reason why child and adolescent psychiatry. You're moving on to the next round of. So many things I take for granted in the year 2022 that people had to study and think about and go, oh, yeah, it might have. That might have an impact on his life down the road. Just maybe. Yeah. And it's also good that we're looking at things now from studies and not just Dickens books. Um, if, if that's how we did it, everyone would be saying, please, sir, I want some more. And if you want more, then that's great. Cause we're moving on to round seven. Round seven. In round seven, we have the list of deserts of Pakistan against the Yagua language. Most excellent. I love rounds like this. So we've got uh, a list of a whole bunch of hot, dry places versus a list of words in a particular tongue, which is always better if it's not hot or dry. So two opposite approaches here. Let's see which one will reign victorious. Pakistan hosts five deserts, which were historically forests. They include the Thar Desert, the Cholistan Desert, the Thal Desert, the Karan Desert, and the Katpana Desert. So let's go through them a little bit one by one. There's some different categories here. We've got coastal deserts, hot and dry deserts, shady deserts, cold deserts. But let's reverse and go to the coastal desert first. The Thar Desert spans an area of 175 square thousand square kilometers and covers large areas of Pakistan as well as India. It's the largest desert of Pakistan and the only subtropical desert of Asia. It's the 16th largest desert on this planet and the third largest in Asia. It is also spread into India and the Thar Desert, also known as the Great Indian Desert, is a large arid region in the northwestern part of the Indian subcontinent that forms the natural boundary between India and Pakistan. It's the world's 16th largest desert and the world's ninth largest subtropical desert. That uh, Let's see, it's 85% of the Thar Desert is in India and the remaining 15% is in Pakistan. So it barely qualifies to be on this list, but that 15% is enough to uh, reach inclusion. Now that's the coastal desert, but Pakistan also has hot and dry deserts such as the Chilistan Desert, locally known as Rohi. This covers the area of Balwapar and Punjab. It adjoins the Thar Desert, extending over Sindh and into India. Chilistan Desert hosts an annual Jeep Rally known as the Chilistan Desert Jeep Rally, very creative name guys, which is the biggest motorsports event in Pakistan. But that's not all. There's also the Thal Desert. Located in the Bakar district between the Indus and Jhelum rivers, a large canal building project is currently underway to irrigate this land and turn it into less of a desert. Irrigation will make most of the desert suitable for farming. And in the north of the Thal Desert are the Salt Ranges, in the east of Jhelum and the Chanab rivers, and to the west of the Indus River. 
Now, if you're like me and when you think of desert, you think of sand, you're going to love this next one, the sandy desert category, including the Karan Desert. This is a sandy and mountainous desert situated in Balochistan province in southwestern Pakistan. This was the site of Pakistan's second nuclear test, Shagai-Li, which was carried out on the 30th of May in 1998. Well, there you go. It's a sandy desert and also a radioactive one. But don't forget, desert doesn't mean hot. Desert just means dry. And there's also a cold desert, the Katpana Desert. This is a high-altitude desert located near Skardu in Pakistan's northern Gilgurt-Balistan region. The desert contains expanses of large sand dunes that are sometimes covered in snow, especially during the winter. Situated at an elevation of 2,226 meters above sea level, this is one of the highest deserts in the world. Now, if you're tired of hearing us say the word desert, perhaps we could learn to say that you know, the, what it means to be a desert in another language. And perhaps that language would be our other competitor, the Yagua, Yagua language. This is spoken primarily in northeastern Peru by the Yagua people. As of 2005, it appears that a few speakers may have migrated across the Peruvian-Colombian border near the town of Leticia. A third of the population is monolingual, and Yagua is the language of instruction in local primary schools. Now, the exonym is spelled Y-A-G-U. Y-A-G-U-A, Y-A-W-A, Y-A-H-U-A, L-L-A-G-U, L-L-A-G-U-A, Y-A-V-A. There's lots of ways to spell it is what I'm learning here. And it is a branch of the Pebayanguin language family. And by the end of the 20th century, there are about 6,000 speakers of this language. At that time, a majority of these individuals were bilingual in both Spanish and the Yagua language few distant communities are still largely monolingual and children were learning the language, though in at least some communities there was parental pressure on the children to speak just Spanish. And some ethnic Yaguans, Yaguas, Yaguas are monolingual in Spanish. So this language is interesting. It has six vowels and 11 consonants. There's a chart here to show the breakdown of them, but you can't see that right now. Check out the Wikipedia article. It exists. If it didn't, we wouldn't know anything about any of this. The language is highly agglutinative, such that most words consist of multiple morphemes, and a single word may contain more than one root. So these are complicated words all built together. Now, that's something I wouldn't know much about because I'm bad at just regular English. Now, they have vowels. There's uh, closed, mid, open, front, back, and central vowels. They're putting them like A, E, I, O, and U here. But then there's also one that looks like an arrow with a dot above it. I have no idea what that one is. They also have lots of consonants. There's a nasal consonant preceding a nasal vowel is a simple nasal sound, but a nasal consonant preceding an oral vowel has an oral. I don't understand. There's a lot of things here I would not get about this language, and I try to give you a word, but I'm not seeing a direct English to Yagua translation. 
No, even the sentence structure is a little bit different. For most Yagawa sentences begin with the verb, followed by the subject and object in that order. It's a double object language with no known syntactic differences between the two objects of verbs like give, for example, or applied objects. The language has numerous post-positions and no prepositions, which is generally unexpected for languages. There are over 40 noun classifiers and essentially no adjectives, no modifiers there. Nouns are modified either by other nouns, by classifiers, or by other suffixes. Yago uses adjective-like nouns as adjectives. The problem then occurs in a sentence like the red hen which would be more like the red one, the hen. Both the red one and the hen could be the head of the noun phrase. This is solved by determining which of the two nouns persists in the following discourse. If the red one persists, then red is the head. And if the hen persists, then hen is the head. The order of the elements is sensitive to determining the head. The language is documented in various works by Paul Paulison, Esther Paulison, Doris and Thomas Paine. Interestingly enough, they have a base five counting system. So instead of going to 10 and starting your process over, they go up to five and flip it. Different numbers are used for inanimate objects and counting uh, versus animate objects. That's interesting as well. This is a fascinating language. I would love to learn more about it. And I think for that reason, it would have to be my pick because I've seen deserts. I've been through deserts. They're fine. I just wouldn't want to spend a lot of time there. Hey, list of deserts of Pakistan, you're all dried up. Yagua language. Um, I wish I could say in a more beautiful and Yaguan way that Yagoan to the next round of the ultimate tournament of everything. It sounds like a really interesting language. Anytime we get a language on here, I'm more interested in it. Even that one that they're pretty sure was made up, but we had a Wikipedia article about, that's a deep cut. That's like episode five. Yeah, that goes all the way back. So check that out. And speaking of five, don't forget to rate us with five stars. Comment on anything that you like. Share, subscribe, tell your friends. But... Uh, you know, you can do so now. Uh, I guess I was going to say wait, but you don't have to because this is a podcast and we are proceeding on to continue entertaining you in round eight. I say, would you by chance have any round eight? Round eight! In round eight, we have Maishal against Ayata. Again, two places, location, location. Let's see which one's vocation will take them into the vacation, which is round two. Mykow is a town in Poland, about 40 kilometers north of Krakow. It is the capital of Mykow County, population of 11,852. It lies on the Mykowka River along European Route E77. The area of the town is 15 square kilometers, and it has a railway station located on the main railroad, which connects Krakow with Warsaw. In the early years of the Polish state, the area of Mykow belonged to the medieval tribe of the Vistulans. In the late 10th century, the region was taken over by the Polans. 
The beginning of Maichau dates back to the year 1163, when a Polish Duke of Pomerania, Jaska of the House of Griffins, who owned the village, invited monks of the Order of the Holy Sepulchre um, to visit. Apart from Maichau, Prince Jaska had handed two other villages to the Order. Pomeranians making places in Poland since all the way back in 1163. Now, the new church with a monastery was blessed by the Bishop of Krakow, Gedka, in 1170. Michał took advantage of the presence of this order, and the settlement expanded together with the abbey. And in 1290, Prince Presmus II granted it the town charter based on the Magdeburg rites. Despite convenient location along merchant routes, Michał grew very slowly due to numerous wars and other conflicts, which is actually going to be a little bit of foreshadowing because there were even more wars and conflicts like everyone's least favorite one world war ii yes the first wehrmacht units entered Maikau on september 6 1939 during world war ii the town belonged to the krakow district of the general government now Maikau was an important center of the home army from the beginning of its occupation germans terrorized the jewish population robbing them of their possessions, kidnapping them for labor gangs, and one night in April of 1940, breaking into homes, attacking men and raping women, and then forcing the Jews to burn holy books in a bonfire and to sing and dance around it in some sort of absolutely ridiculous show of ridiculousness. Let's just, uh, that's that's all I can say in this family-friendly podcast. Um in March of 1941, the Jews were forced into a ghetto, which also included Jews from some surrounding villages. They could only take what they could carry into the new residences. And in August of 1942, 600 sick and elderly Jews were taken to Slominiki, where they were held without food and water for several days. And then some were shot on the spot and dumped into an open pit. Some were sent to labor camps. Others were sent to... Belzac, where they were murdered immediately. This is just all bad news here. Um, it, a lot of bad stuff happened here. A lot of uh, terrible, terrible things that may they never be repeated. Nazis are bad. We say that a lot on the show, and it's always true. It will, it will never stop being true. Nazis are bad. They stink. Yeah, they they more than stink. If if this show were not Ooh, PG, if it wasn't family friendly, we would have words. Let's oh. let's at Wait least till. talk about somebody who beat the Nazis. Of course, I'm talking about Ayata, the rural locality in Russia. Population of 66 as of 2010, 23 kilometers northeast of Ust-Kishert, and Petrarda is the nearest rural locality that is about all we know but i bet they kick some nazi butt in world war ii i mean maybe there's only 66 of them hey man how many does it take to beat up a nazi well i mean it takes some i guess uh look i'm just looking at this Mikau and uh this is they got a cool coat of arms they got a rough history and again, 
you know, if this wasn't an, oh, I tell you, if this wasn't a family friendly podcast, oh, we got choice words for these Nazis. So, you know what? They've, they've had their tough times, but um, let's, let's bounce back to them. Cause there's, there's more interesting stuff here. Mike, they've had some prominent individuals, some, you know, people of note an important local personality of was a, uh, my sedge of my cow, Polish Renaissance scholar, doctor of medicine, canon, astrologist, historian, all the smart things. He was elected eight times as rector to the Academy of Krakow. He is the author of uh, Trek Tetis de Daubus Samartis, a treatise on two Samaritis, uh, considered the first accurate geographical and ethnographical description of Eastern Europe. Among other people from Mykow, there is Emmanuel Tenet, the Polish diplomat and jurist, Mieczysław Minelli, who was born and grew up there. Um, I think for all of those reasons and for all of the uh, more you know terrible reasons that it's good to remember, but not good to you know have existed in the first place again nazis are bad i think that i'm going to be laying my hammer emphatically down for my cow to move on to the next round i would have to agree with you only because that guy you listened used to be a cannon and i'm interested in how you become a cannon and then you turn back into a person we'll have to investigate that further perhaps in round two isn't that what cannon means yeah, I was just waiting for the sound effect, but really, I'm also holding on to the thought that, you know, that guy who got shot in the stomach with a cannon, he's super famous. Yeah. Yeah, that guy, uh, yeah, that's probably the closest anybody's come to like turning into a cannon. He was definitely impacted by that cannon, and I'm sure that uh, it changed him. Well, given that glowing endorsement of cannon fire. The ultimate tournament of everything. <laughs> We've made it to everybody's favorite round. If you love the show, it might be your least favorite one. If you're new to the show and you don't like it, don't worry. There's only one more. And that's round nine. It's about time round nine. Round nine. In round nine, we have Alf cleverly against the 1947 North Korean local elections. That we do. We've got a guy named Alf, not an alien of, uh, you know, an alien life form. Definitely a human, although there's a picture here. And aliens can look like anything. I, I don't know. I've never seen one. Versus the 1947 North Korean local elections. Those were probably super legit. Let's find out which one is going to be victorious in. Oh, man. Yeah, that's going to be super legit election. Let's see which one's <laughs> going to be victorious here. Alf Cleverly, born September 18th, 1907. Wait, 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 wait. Alf Cleverly? This guy was definitely an alien. Alfred John Cleverly was a New Zealand boxer from Pitone. He competed in the 1920 Olympics in the men's light heavyweight section, but lost on points in the first round to Alf Jackson of Great Britain. Ah, yes, the Battle of the Alfs, won for the ages. After the Olympics, he competed in the... Toledian Games in Dublin, then fought professionally in Long Beach, California, and returned to New Zealand in 1930, married, and resumed work on the railway workshops at Pitone, and then at the hut as a fitter. 
we had an elf versus an elf. Yeah. In retrospect, that sounds like amazing and awesome. But perhaps in the time, that was a common name. So, you know, I, I we'd have to get that uh, just that time machine that we've wanted so much. Now, I'm sure this guy would like a time machine as well, for he passed away on the 25th of July in 1992. But that's a good long life. Let's back it up, though, to 1928 and the Olympic results there. In um, he made it to the round of 16, which is pretty good. Top 16 boxers in the world. Uh, that Olympics was held in Amsterdam. Uh, he was, a, again, a light heavyweight boxer, splitting the difference, doing all of the things. There's a picture of him here. And he looks like a guy who you really don't want to punch and you definitely don't want to get punched by. He's smiling. And because of the old-timey photo, I can't tell if he's missing teeth or if it's just the photo. But either way, he looks like a happy man who's probably on the up and up, unlike the 1947 <laughs> North Korean local elections. There were two local elections held in North Korea in 1947. Village and neighborhood um, people's committee elections were held on February 24th and 25th. They had a 99.85% voter turnout and 86.7% of the voters voted in favor of the proposed candidates. It doesn't even say proposed. It just says candidates. Ninety-nine <laughs> percent of the people voted, and less than ninety-nine percent of them voted for candidates. <laughs> they voted. I, everybody else what? probably just yeah. They wrote in elf. There you go. Now there were two elections that year. Township people's committee elections were held on March fifth. Again, crazy voter turnout with fifty-seven percent of the votes voted in favor of the candidates. So the other people are like, if you make me vote, I'll put present like i don't understand not that any of it matters in north korea the the elections are made up and the people don't matter yeah it's like the who's line of uh nations i suppose uh and drew carey would probably be i don't know you think he would be welcome there uh dennis rodman was yeah i would actually love to see a now who's line spoof where drew carey is Kim Jong-un, the whatever, and they just... I, now, that'd be banned in North Korea, obviously, but what's North Korea going to do? Assassinate me? Uh, go ahead. You can try North yes. Korea. Go ahead. Well, if anyone could succeed, perhaps it would be them. But this individual, Alf Cleverly, I think, you know, he's the one here who's like, yeah, not an alien, first and foremost, and secondly, he was out there giving it his all. He, even after boxing he went on to work at railway workshops you know he was a fitter he did a whole bunch of things always staying fit that's important for a boxer uh i, I like this guy definitely more than i like uh you know these ridiculous no you're never gonna get 99.85 percent of voters and what about that other 0.15 percent like what were they proposed to be doing well apparently they're they're i don't know maybe they voted the wrong way who knows? It's North Korea. Well, Alf, you've made it into the ninth round of this tournament. You went 10 rounds in the Olympics, and I think you are punching way above your weight to defeat the 1947 North Korean local elections in this round of... The Ultimate Tournament of Everything. Well, there we Incredible. have it. Incredible. Yeah. We have made it. Yeah. 
We did. We arrived. We've arriven. We've arriven. And you have joined us all the way through. So we appreciate you. If you've appreciated us, please don't forget to like, comment, subscribe, rate, do all the things that you can do because time is fleeting. And uh, if you're not doing something, you're doing nothing. And, you know, that's also a totally valid choice. And I respect you for that. So please join us tomorrow for another edition of... The ultimate turn to judge everything.